Our gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel according to Matthew in the 22nd chapter. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are sincere and teach the way of God in accordance with truth and show deference to no one for you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is on this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. Our second reading comes from the first letter to the Thessalonians. We always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers constantly, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, beloved by God, that he has chosen you because our message of the gospel came to you not in word only, but also in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of persons we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and the Lord, for in spite of the persecution you received the word with joy, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing and our understanding of God's holy word. Rabbi and psychologist Abraham Tversky has famously said that humans have five basic needs, food, water, clothing, shelter, and someone to blame. <laughs> it's funny, but it's true. Salem, Massachusetts is the most famous site of the witch trials where historians tell us that more than 200 people were accused in one year. 30 people were found guilty, 19 of whom were executed by hanging, as well as two dogs. One other man died under torture after refusing to cooperate, and at least five more people died in jail. During the same year, Fairfield also tried two accused witches. Did you know? Goody Clausen and Goody Disparo. They were bound and thrown into Edward's Pond which is just across the street from us. You could see it if you opened those doors and looked. It's no longer a pond, just a divot in the ground. The women failed the test, witches were supposed to float, and even though these women did, they were somehow let go after that. I would like to think that the shame of what they were doing caught up to their accusers who couldn't bear to test them again and execute them and let them go. Goody Knapp, a simple-minded woman was executed less than two miles away from here in the Black Rock section, just off Fairfield Ave. 
Next year, we will celebrate our 385th anniversary. 385 years ago, the people who we call pilgrims and Puritans and claim as the spiritual ancestors of this congregation who settled in this place that had been called Unkaway and called it Fairfield, people who were led by Roger Ludlow, they struggled to meet those basic needs, food, water, clothing, and shelter. But the witches that the Puritans imagined were among them were that easy fifth, someone to blame. The leaders surely thought that they were living by biblical standards. Witches are recorded as far back as the Hebrew scriptures and farther in other cultures. Listen to these texts from Exodus and Leviticus. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Ye shall not use enchantment nor observe times. A man or a woman that hath a familiar spirit or that is a wizard shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. The history of the attempted drowning of witches in Fairfield is also the history of First Church. The history of the witch hunts and executions more widely is the history of congregational churches which now form the United Church of Christ. Our own magistrates, ministers of this place, conspiring with the leadership of Hartford, presided over trials. The idea to preach a sermon about witches has been percolating for some time. I think it comes as a little bit of a shock. On the one hand, in the middle of our stewardship season, aren't we supposed to be talking about a future of hope, not a past of terror? But to me, it aligns with where we are in our scriptures, where Jesus is wrestling with the power of the political leaders and the religious leaders, where the texts reflect this ancient and Puritan obsession with a wrath that is coming, where a traumatized pilgrim people share that same fear with their ancient predecessors of horrors of persecution and the future horrors they imagine if they did not get this new experiment and what they thought of as the new world right. They believed that there was a wrath to come if they didn't live out their faith in the right way. On the other hand, just over a week before Halloween, this is very timely. Who among us hasn't seen a representation of a fictitious witch in the last week. The ones in CVS that are a motion sensor are especially terrifying. They give me a jump scare every time. And how many of you will answer the door to little children dressed as witches with black pointed hats demanding that you deposit candy into their little cauldrons on October 31st? Who hasn't seen the seasonal Movies and TV shows advertised recently when you are looking for some entertainment. Harry Potter and Hocus Pocus and Sabrina, some of them making witchcraft look funny or cute or endearing, some of them horror movies, which are truly terrifying. For a history we try to ignore, it is still very much baked into our collective consciousness and imagination. I saw a phrase recently that stopped me in my tracks. Why were we taught to fear witches and not the ones who drowned them or burned them alive. 
which leads me to wonder how funny it would be if the costumes of the ones who had burned the witches, can you imagine little Puritan ministers coming to ring your doorbell and demand candy on October 31st? So I decided, obviously, yes, we should sit here on a beautiful fall morning and dedicate some time to consider witches. The folklore version of elderly women with gnarled arthritic hands and long frizzy gray hair topped with a pointed black hat who allegedly made lustful pacts with the devil and rode around the skies on broomsticks accompanied, of course, by a black cat. Women who could tell the future by looking into a crystal ball and who mixed potions in a black cauldron. They did not exist. But also to remember the history of the so-called witches, the Puritan good wives, all nicknamed Goody, who were falsely accused of such things in a season of mass hysteria by our Puritan forebears, and who were tried by fire or water, and who confessed to bizarre things under torture, who were publicly shamed and publicly executed. Most of the documents have been destroyed from this time, but it is clear that the accused felt much like Jesus. Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites, by their letters and their statements? Their neighbors were plotting to entrap them, and they were persecuted. This short period in early American history has puzzled historians who have tried to apply science, sociology, political science to find answers to make sense of the nonsensical. For example, there is now a widely accepted theory that a very damp summer in 1692 caused the rye to be infected with hallucinogenic, a hallucinogenic fungus which set off seizures and visions in the community. Have you heard that? Others point to the reality that women were always present at one another's births and sicknesses and deathbeds. All of these were traditionally female spaces. So when mortality rates were as high as they were, half the people who came off the Mayflower did not survive the first year, and there were many subsequent traumatic events for the community that followed, the women who were present were an obvious target of blame, having always been at the scene of the crime. And women had handed down traditional practices of medicine for generations, which combined with the simple symbols of domestic labor, a broom and a cauldron, made it easy for imaginations to run away with fears about the power in the bruise. And so the very idea of a witch stirring a cauldron and a brew while chanting an incantation the wise woman stirring medicine in a pot over her fire while chanting verses was an innocent practice which became seen to be sinister. One historian explains that the length of time that it takes to say the pater noster or the Our Father was a typical method of time reckoning in the Middle Ages. He writes, it's likely that whoever wrote a remedy down that they had recorded and began to test with modern science, that that person who recorded it was thinking of it both as a prayer and as a time span, and that whoever would have read it would have understood it in the same way. So this recipe calls for the recitation of the Our Father while boiling a honey-based salve, which was meant to treat an illness, which in fact did work when they tried it out. The recipe book instructs the physician to bring it to a boil, 
sing the Our Father three times, remove it from the Father, and sing the Our Father nine times, and to repeat this process two more times. Can you picture it? A century ago, historians misunderstood the use of this as a magical incantation, but today most would agree that in lieu of a stopwatch, saying the Our Father was simply meant to make sure that you don't burn the honey. Like how children count one Mississippi, two Mississippi, to make sure they're staying on track. These so-called spells and potions, of course, threatened the power of the church. Interestingly, the words hocus-pocus come from the words of the Latin Mass, when the priest would stand at the communion table and take the bread and say in Latin, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. And it was at that moment that Catholics believed that the bread became the body of Christ. It was at that moment that this transformation occurred. So hocus pocus was just a spin on saying that this is the moment of transformation, but it became a term for magic. Sociologists would also point out another truth, that women on the fringes of society, widows in particular, have always seemed outside of male control and so presented a threat to church leaders. It was something about femininity itself, independent femininity, that was a threat to church leaders. Back across the Atlantic in Germany, at the height of the witch trials, so many women were accused and executed in one village that not a single woman survived, making this called a gender side rather than a genocide. And sociologists would also point out that despite our remove from this time period, a fear of witches remains. Women today seem to feel as though they must be without a line or a wrinkle or a flyaway gray hair, lest they look crone-like. Celebrity women into their 80s must not look a day over the age of 25. The new conspicuous consumption is age-defying plastic surgery, which all goes back to the deep misogyny that leaves little room or respect in society for a wise woman. What a tragic loss. The image of a loving granny instead is changed into the witch and Hansel and Gretel. I could lead us all farther and further down this rabbit hole of study, but to bring us back to what I consider to be a true sermon, how do we live in light of the scriptures? How do we live in the light of the good news? And how do we let our history confront and challenge us? It is so important that as a faith community, we name and acknowledge and remember our history. We acknowledge that the land that we stand on was called Unkaway and was the homeland of the Pagasset people. We acknowledge the history that we are still digging into as we prepare to celebrate our 385th anniversary that the Reverend and Andrew Elliott of First Church was an enslaver, as were we think two other pastors. And we are uncovering, exposing that history now that pastors who were descended from England enslaved and lived comfortably off the unpaid and abusive labor of descendants of Africa. But what possible good could it do or repair could we do over witch trials? There is a movement now in Connecticut and Massachusetts to exonerate them. Should we? 
What possible difference would it make if I stood here and exonerated them, me, if those same ancestors walked in this room, I have no doubt that I would be first on the list of the accused. Can you imagine? What difference would that make? We are also all descended from the accused and the accusers. Did you know that if you were to count the number of ancestors you have at this time, it is two to the power of 15, you have some 30, 2,000 ancestors from this time. We are all surely related or descended from people who have both committed atrocities and had atrocities committed against them. Many of us in this room would be descended from both the accusers and the accused. So shall we stand up and as we pass the peace, offer and receive pardon? What difference would any of this make? Or can we use the history to name and hopefully root out our human need to find that someone to blame, someone to name as other, someone to make into a boogeyman? When you compare the tropes used to describe witches, their big noses, rumors of their pacts with the devil, stories of them eating babies, these are identical to anti-Semitic tropes that have plagued people since the Middle Ages and continue to do harm in our communities. The very idea of a witch was the terror that one of your own neighbors or family members could have defected and become an other living among you, deserving of your hatred and your death. Do we still do the same? Can we use the history lesson this morning to reject the human insistence on finding that someone to blame and maybe, just maybe commit to growing in spiritual strength so that we can use this as a reproach against those who seek to find a scapegoat, whether that be someone who is a woman or someone who is a Jew or a Muslim, a person of any ethnicity other than yours, an elder, a free thinker, a free spirit, or simply a figment of your imagination. Can we use it to practice the gift of refusing groupthink, mob mentality, group hysteria, and practice a willingness to be the one, even if a lone voice, for reason and restraint, to practice in following the way of Jesus, where we would be the one persecuted but refuse to be the persecutor. This is a world in which we can be all too quick to hate and judge and blame and shame and mistrust. When we can fall into the trap of calling other people subhuman or non-human, I've heard the term human animals used this week as people seek to dehumanize their enemies, we must reject it and refuse to fall into the pattern of demonization and dehumanization. Each and every one of us is human. And truly humans can participate in incredible acts of cruelty. But to be a faithful human is also to reject the dehumanization and seek to follow in the way of the Prince of Peace. Refuse to allow anybody to dehumanize anyone else. Challenge the evils that people can do, but do not dehumanize the people. I think the best interpretation of what Jesus is saying in response to the ones who came to catch him in a trap when he took that coin and he pointed to the face on it 
and said, Who is this? And said to give to God what is God's. He was also calling to mind that each and every one of us belongs to God. Human beings are all created imago dei, in the image of God. If our history can teach us anything, it should be this. Each person created in God's own divine image is truly loved and cherished by God. May it be so.